My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. We don't have time to mess around anymore. Just as with CO2 levels rising, the loss of biodiversity across the planet is devastating. So it seems like it's up to us to get in the way and start demanding action and refuse to allow the destruction of the last remaining mature forests in Nova Scotia. That's the voice of Nina Newington. She's today's guest on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. The amount of forested land in Nova Scotia is fairly modest compared to most other provinces, and almost none of it is old growth. However, though employment in the sector has been steadily declining for many years, there is still enough that the province maintains an active forestry industry. Given the devastating impacts that it's had on ecosystems in Nova Scotia, the rules governing how the industry operates have been hotly contested for a long time. There have been a couple of major reform efforts in the last 15 years attempting to introduce more ecologically sound approaches, but resistance by industry has been fierce and largely successful. And in their victory in last year's provincial election over the incumbent Liberals, the Conservatives promised to protect 20% of the province's land to the Liberals' 17%, yet little progress has been made on implementing that either. Today's guest describes the overarching tendency across governments in recent decades as talk and log, making promises of consultation and change while actively facilitating the same old ecological harms. Nina Newington came out as a lesbian in 1970s England which she said, quote, left me with a fairly skeptical take on the structures of power, end quote. She lived for many years as an undocumented immigrant in the U.S., where she was involved in environmental action related to a nearby nuclear reactor. And in the early 2000s, she and her wife moved to Canada. She lives on a farm in southwest Nova Scotia, which has given her plenty of opportunity to witness the, quote, devastating effect that industrial forestry was having, end quote. And that has become a primary focus for her grassroots political work. At some point, she discovered the Nova Scotia branch of climate action group Extinction Rebellion and co-founded a chapter in her area, which at this point has, in a loose sense at least, been the base of three major forest defense direct actions. The most recent started last December. Newington saw a comment in a Facebook group from a local farmer, hunter, and trapper who was frustrated that nearby Crown land, where he'd had a cabin for many years, was set to be logged within a couple of weeks. She connected with him, they talked it over, and they decided to set up a camp. The threatened forest is not old growth, but at about 80 years old, it is still older than the vast majority of forest in the province. It is ecologically important as it provides habitat for a number of species at risk, and it connects three large wetland areas. They call their action Last Hope Camp, after a hunting camp that had existed in the same place in the early 20th century. In those years, game was already getting scarce, and hunters who didn't have the meat they needed to last the winter would often go there and have a good chance of finding moose. In the almost six months since the camp began, around 80 people have spent time there, including 50 who have camped and many more have acted in support in urban areas. 
Of particular importance to the camp was a visit early on from the chief of the local district of the traditional Mi'kmaq governance system, who presented them with a flag of the seven Mi'kmaq districts, an endorsement of their presence on the territory defending the forest. So far, though it was supposed to start late last year, there's been no sign of efforts to begin cutting. At least part of the reason for that is that the group has successfully identified numerous new instances of species at risk, particularly rare lichens, that the provincial government's supposedly thorough assessment of the forest had somehow missed. The camp is demanding that permission to log this particular piece of forest be rescinded. They're also asking that a larger piece of territory that encompasses where the camp is, as well as some of the province's minuscule remaining old growth, be protected. In the bigger picture, they hope a broader movement can push the province to end its talk and log orientation and begin taking real action to preserve the province's forests. I speak with Newington about the practicalities of direct actions in defense of forests and about the Last Hope camp. My name is Nina Newington. I live on the North Mountain in Nova Scotia near the Bay of Fundy. I'm a member of Extinction Rebellion and a very loose group called Forest Protectors. In the end of 2020, I was arrested at the end of an eight-week blockade of logging roads in southwest Nova Scotia trying to protect endangered moose habitat. And, well, now I'm at it again camped out at a camp we call Last Hope, trying to protect a small forest that's ecologically important to species at risk, and also just one of the few remaining standing forests in a sea of clear cuts. I'm a lesbian. I came out in 1970s England, which was not a very friendly place to come out. So I had a kind of outsider's view, and that left me with a fairly skeptical take on the structures of power of the country that I grew up in. And then when I moved I moved to America for 25 years, where I lived as an illegal alien for most of that time. During that time, I was also living downstream from a nuclear reactor, and that was a place where I got involved with environmental action. Eventually, we decided to immigrate to Canada, and we lived in Edmonton for a couple of years where I learned a lot about Indigenous rights. I worked at a mostly Indigenous addictions treatment center and had a lot of Indigenous friends and got a really different take than the settler Canadian version in which people kept reassuring me there was no racism in Canada. I'm also a writer, and I wrote a novel called Cardinal Divide. In 2008, we moved to Nova Scotia and quite quickly began to see the devastating effect that industrial forestry was having on the whole province. It's kind of a have-not province that's been at the mercy of pulp and paper mills for 100 years, but particularly in the last 30, the clear-cutting has gone crazy. I live on a farm and we have endangered barn swallows, and I get great joy from watching them but also always that sort of clutch of grief at how endangered they are. And I realized that the thing that's always fed me, that connection to the natural world, was also a source of pain these days. There came a day when I was looking up at the swallows and feeling that whole mix of joy and grief and guilt and helplessness. And I heard myself say out loud, I'll do what I can. And, you know, sometimes you say something and you realize that it is true and it's coming from a very deep place inside you. So ever since then, I've been doing what I can, and that for me has involved trying to, in the words of Alexandra Morton, the wonderful whale scientist and salmon protector, her words are, if you can do it peacefully and honorably, getting in the way of what damages the earth is incredibly powerful, and it works.
So I have started getting in the way of what damages the earth. And here in rural Nova Scotia, what called to me was to get in the way of the clear-cutting of forests and the destruction of the habitat for wildlife, which is also our habitat. I happened to see a picture on Facebook of a group of people holding an Extinction Rebellion banner across a logging road in southwest Nova Scotia. And I thought, thank God, somebody's actually doing something, like really getting in the way. And who are these Extinction Rebellion people? I got connected and we started a chapter here in Annapolis County where I live. And very loosely, that's been the organizing base for three different actions where we've protected forests or tried to protect forests in one case by camping out and getting in the way. Nova Scotia is a relatively small province. It's also home to a, quite a unique form of forest, a combination of the evergreen boreal forest of the north and the more deciduous forests of the south. Nova Scotia has been subject to a tremendous amount of clear-cutting. In the part that I live in, the southwest of Nova Scotia, the industry talks about it as the last fiber basket. It's the last source of fiber because they hadn't walloped it as hard as the rest of the province. A lot of the most immediate struggle is to change the practices on crown land, which I say in inverted commas because it's really the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Mi'kmaq people. In southwest Nova, a lot of this land was actually owned by a pulp mill called Bowater Mersey. They went bankrupt, as many of these pulp mills have, and there was a huge effort by Nova Scotians to buy back a lot of that land. And in 2012, we did, thinking that that land would now be treated more gently and with higher values for conservation and for recreation. But in fact, the provincial government put it in the hands of a consortium of mills called Westfor, who have been running along and cutting it just as fast as they can. All this is also in the context that for the last 13 years, there have been promises from government to reform the clear-cutting. It started with an NDP government, and they produced a wonderful natural resources strategy. Didn't really start to act on it. When the Liberals came in, they basically ditched most of it. Then we got a new promise of a new plan. So we had lots of promises of reform, and we gradually realized that most of this is talk and log. You know, they keep us hoping that change is coming, but meantime, they've gone right along with clear-cutting more and more. Some bit of change is finally coming. The other thing that happened was that in August of last year, the Conservatives, the PCs, won a majority. And part of how they won that majority was they sort of ran to the left of the Liberals on environmental issues. And they pledged to protect 20% of Nova Scotia by 2030, where the Liberals were only pledging to protect 17%. They're going to need to add 330,000 hectares to the protected areas in order to meet that target. However, what's happening is they're just going on issuing permits to keep cutting, whether those cuts have a slightly more ecological tilt or not, without any kind of planning about what areas should be protected. And that's kind of the issue with the area that we set up camp. It's on something called the South Mountain. It's a great big granitic area of fairly poor soils with lots of lakes and lots of forest, except that if you fly over it, you see how little of that forest is really intact. A huge, huge amount of it is clear cuts, and some of those clear cuts aren't regrowing because the soil is too poor and acidic to recover from all of the assaults that have come its way since settlement. 
So what happened with the area where we have set up camp, and we set up camp the 2nd of December, was that I happened to see a comment that somebody made on a local environmental Facebook group talking about how he had tried to stop a harvest that was imminent, but had been told that it was too late to stop it, and they were going to start cutting within two weeks. And this harvest was on the South Mountain, about 45 minutes from where I live. So I contacted him. His name is Randy Neely. He's a farmer, a hunter, a trapper. He's a seventh generation Nova Scotian in that place. He used to vote conservative. You know, he's not people's idea of an environmentalist, but he's really deeply connected to that land. He's been traveling it all his life. He has a cabin there. And his neighbor, Simile, who's a master corporal in the Canadian forces, is deeply attached. And when they saw flagging go up late in November, they kind of swung into action and they tried to contact the Department of Natural Resources and Renewables. They were eventually able to get DNRR to talk to them. And the natural resources guys, surprise, surprise, said, no, well, sorry, it's too late. The harvest was already approved. You'll have to talk to Westfall, which is that consortium of mills. And Randy talked to Westfall, and they said, oh, no, no, too late. It's going to happen within the next two weeks. At which point, Randy made the comments on Facebook. This particular forest connects three large wetland areas. It also isn't worth all that much in terms of lumber. It's really worth a lot more as habitat for mainland moose and wood turtle and pine marten, and as it turns out, rare lichens as well. It's not a huge, magnificent, old-growth forest. There's about 0.15% of the forests in Nova Scotia are old-growth. We've lost so much forest that this forest, which is about 80 years old, is already a rarity. In 1958, 25% of Nova Scotia's forests were 80 years old or older. Now it's between 1% and 5%. So although this forest is not huge and magnificent, it is more mature than almost anything else around, and it really needs to be protected. The harvest that Westfall is proposing for it is not a clear cut. It's a possibly somewhat ecologically acceptable cut called a uniform shelterwood these have been so abused in Nova Scotia, it's hard to sound enthusiastic about it. But their plan was to take 30% of the wood. But it is a forest that shouldn't be cut at all. It should be put into the protected areas plan. We felt strongly enough to go in and set up camp with the intent of getting in the way of the proposed harvest. The particular spot we set up, it's kind of into the middle of Nova Scotia. It's not coastal, it gets a lot more snow, it's a bit colder. It so happens that it's also the exact site of the Last Hope hunting camp, which Randy Neely told me about that first day. And that was a camp that was set up in the 1920s when game was already growing scarce in Nova Scotia because of all the damage that settlers had already done. But there were always so many moose in this particular area that if you hadn't managed to bag your moose for winter meat, somewhere else, you might come there and have a good shot at doing it. So it was called the Last Hope Hunting Camp. So that seemed like a good name. And we were also connecting with Indigenous groups. The Mi'kmaq are trying to reestablish a traditional form of governance, as are many Indigenous groups, that is separate from the colonial structure created by the Indian Act with the reserves and the band councils and that structure, which really only has authority, if it has any, over the reserves. 
So in Mi'kma'ki, that traditional structure had seven districts. And the district that we're in, Gispubwig, is District 1. And the district chief, Marilyn Lee Francis, has come up to camp on a kind of official visit and formally presented us with the flag of the seven districts to fly. And we've been told that this is our invitation to be on territory. And thanks to us for our efforts to protect the land and the creatures that live on it. One of the things that we're beginning to do is also teaching workshops from camp. The first one was a settlers education workshop. Since then, we've also had a lichen identification workshop. One of the things that has happened is that a lichen enthusiast came and took a tour through the forest that's slated to be cut. On one day, he identified one extremely rare lichen, which does have a species at risk designation, and that requires a 100-meter buffer around it if there's to be any logging around it. Then he came back a few days later and found two other species at risk, five specimens altogether. He reported them, and at that point, the Department of Natural Resources put a freeze on the harvest for a couple of months. They hired a lichenologist to come out, and he did confirm the five specimens the first guy found and then also added two more that he found. So we were kind of hoping that maybe the Department of Natural Resources would say, gosh, it looks like we made a mistake deciding that we should go ahead and harvest this forest. But no, that isn't what happened. Instead, they decided to impose the buffers without even coming out and flagging them. They were a bit embarrassed, the Department of Natural Resources and Renewables, because they'd made quite a big deal out of the fact that their biologists had reviewed the site, not once, but twice in response to citizen concerns, and had found nothing that they needed to worry about. And as it turned out, their biologists basically never left their desk, because they mostly don't. And as a part of their attempt to manage that, their spokesman said, and you know, yeah, we we don't really have enough experts. So yeah, this would be an opportunity to educate citizen scientists in Nova Scotia. They haven't really made any moves to do that. But that's part of why we decided we should start doing that. And so we brought in a lichen expert and she taught a workshop and we went into the forest and we found another couple of specimens of one of these rare lichens. But it feels as though the government is once again probably playing us all for fools, that they're saying, yes, yes, we're going to protect 20% by 2030. And they even put it into legislation. But there's no sign yet that they're doing any kind of landscape level planning to do that. They seem to just keep on issuing approvals to cut forests all through Crown land. And I think for the people at camp, which, by the way, is quite a lot of people. I think my last estimate was that 80 different people have been physically at camp, and there must be at least 50 people who've rotated through camping there. And the people who come to camp share a knowledge that we don't have time to mess around anymore. Just as with CO2 levels rising, the loss of biodiversity across the planet is devastating. And our government seems to not have any great sense of urgency about this. So it seems like it's up to us to get in the way and start demanding action and refuse to allow the destruction of the last remaining mature forests in Nova Scotia while they play games with us and say, yes, yes, we're going to protect it. What does it actually involve to make a sustained forest defense camp like this happen? 
the very first one we did of these in 2019 was literally a spur of the moment. Okay, we've had this rally out in this site where they're saying they're going to start logging. It feels really bad to go home. And so we set up tents and began to figure out how you block a logging road. We've evolved since then. And we learned that, you know, it really does help to have what we were loaned, which is a couple of prospectors tents that can stand up to the winds on logging roads and in which you can put a wood stove. It's sort of glamping with a possible criminal record. But, you know, actually, really, the odds of that in this particular site are very, very low. So having some infrastructure, having some access to things like that is very helpful. We actually raised enough money during that action that we were able to acquire a tent of our own of that sort. So, you know, there's the need for camping gear. And we find that people are quite willing to do things like lend us winter sleeping bags and extra stuff. But there's also the organizational element of it. And that very first one, initially, I was trying to do pretty much everything. And I realized within about three days that I would lose my mind. So somebody else in our Extinction Rebellion group stepped up and took over scheduling and just organizing the kind of who's coming, when, where, making sure they have directions, finding out what kind of vehicle they drive, figuring out all of those, you know, who can come in together, what's happening. You absolutely have to have that bit. You always need really good directions. It's good to idiot-proof them, which I did the first time by getting lost for about two hours. Needing also somebody who's going to be a spokesperson. I mean, it can be more than one person, but you need at least one person who's reasonably comfortable being interviewed live. Working out what your ask is is actually pretty important. Ideally, you have something winnable. So you don't say, you know, we will stay camped here until all clear-cutting stops in Nova Scotia. You say, we're camped out here to protect this particular forest. Cancel the harvest plan and we can go home. Then there's just people bringing gear, you know, a wood stove, firewood, food, cooking implements, that kind of stuff. But also, it won't work if the people who are camping are not connecting to a wider circle of people who might not be up for camping on a logging road, let alone getting arrested, but are up for signing petitions and writing letters and donating some money and calling politicians. Many of us might feel like we've tried letters and petitions and marches and it doesn't do enough, but it doesn't mean that those things shouldn't happen. You need them to happen so the politicians can't say, oh, it's just a gaggle of, you know, 10 loony tree huggers out in the woods and nobody else cares. So when we did our moose blockade, 37,000 people signed a Nature Nova Scotia petition asking for them to not clear cut that mainland moose habitat. We also find that people come who can't come and camp overnight, but they'll come for the day and bring food or, you know, somebody came and did a chainsaw carving of a little bear out of a log. And it was great. It was really fun. At other points, when we were under a lot of pressure dealing with logging stuff, a couple of people in Halifax in the city went and did a sit-in at the Department of Natural Resources, demanding that they meet with us. And were arrested and, you know, have gone through things. And that was incredibly good for morale to feel like, hey, it's not just us out here on this remote logging road. People are not only paying attention, they're being willing to step up. My own feeling is that we all need to do what we can do. And some people, for lots of different reasons, can't risk arrest. I mean, the way we have this camp set up, we're actually not doing anything illegal at this point. We have a right to protest. We have a right to be on Crown land. 
So it's important to value everything that people can contribute. So one of your demands, then, must be protection of this specific site. What else do you think the provincial government must do to move from their talk-and-log orientation to actually protecting forests in Nova Scotia? We actually have also submitted a proposal to protect an area that's considerably larger than just this forest. And it includes a lake where there does seem to be old-growth forest. So there are a couple of places that have not yet been decimated, and we're trying to protect them as well as this forest by putting in this proposal for protection. If the Department of Environment were to put that, it's called under consideration for protection, that would automatically bring a freeze to the road building and cuts that are proposed for this bigger area. That's, in a way, a stepping stone towards our goal, which is to encourage people across Nova Scotia to demand that the government step up and get going with the protection of 20% of the province that we don't accept that they're going to keep cutting and then go, oh, look, I guess we're going to have to protect this land that's already been cut. And some of what we're doing is these workshops to teach people skills, like how to recognize species at risk lichen, like how to use an app like Avenza to navigate through crown land to find a cut block that's under threat. Maybe we'll have another nonviolent direct action workshop taught by somebody else how to block a bridge. What I hope would happen eventually is that people connect to places that they care about near where they live and decide that they're really not willing to accept those areas being cut and that they really do want them protected and they'll do what they need to do to keep them whole until they're protected. And I think people are beginning to just stand up and say, no, not on my watch. And we're really screwed if we don't start doing that. It's not going to be easy for forests to regrow as climate change bites. I mean, we've already seen here incredibly strong windstorms, sudden blasts of devastating rain. Nova Scotia is not really a wildfire as a natural part of the climate regime here, but there have been fires here. They've been connected to clear cutting. And we're going to see increased strength of hurricanes. Getting enough people to stand up and get in the way I don't know. You know, that's always a question, what it takes. I think most of the people who are coming to camp are either under 30 or over 60. And some of that is just that it's difficult for people to take off from work and they have family and obligations and so on and so forth. But if people were taking seriously what the science is telling us, they might be expressing more alarm and more urgency. What I hope is that we take action before it's too late, and we're pretty darn close to that point. So personally, that's why I'm willing to go out and keep camping and keep saying no, keep saying we need to act now, keep saying you can't keep doing what you've been doing. We don't accept it. We don't consent. This isn't something that you can keep doing, and we're going to get in the way. You have been listening to my interview with Nina Newington of The Last Hope Camp. To learn more about it, search for Last Hope Camp on eco-action.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.